Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today we are really leaning into the thoughtful, delicious takeaway aspect because we are joined with Vikram Paralkar, author of Night Theater, which just came out this year. And he is a physician, mm. scientist, mm. And he moonlights as an author. This is like this is like my dream interview because he's written this really philosophical, interesting book. But and it's also kind of dark and scary. Yeah. But so so we can talk about the process of writing that book and the ideas in it. But he also is a working physician at mm-hmm. UPenn treating patients with leukemia. So he has all this insight about how we talk about death in our society and how he interacts with, with patients. merging of science and spirituality. Yeah. And, and actually you'll hear, you'll hear Catherine within the interview. She, she asks him a question and, and part of the opening of it is this idea of, of humans and whether at our core we are good, or bad, rotten, like rotten. the apple and from Snow White. It's, <laughs> <laughs> or the apple from e- from Eden. Wasn't that a bad apple too? There was or a was quote, the, bad apple. Or was the apple fine? Or was Eve the bad apple? Right. Or was Adam the bad apple? Mm-hmm. But or was do that, we take it all the way back to Lilith? Because Lilith came before Eve. But was the apple bad? Or was the act of eating that apple back in Eden bad? Truly I, I believe the apple was very shiny and alluring. And that was and the problem. But it, but it probably but tasted... But if the person was bad at their core then it probably wasn't a honey crisp because those are the best apples. It had to have been a red delicious. But at that point in time, probably organic. Probably organic. I think that all of life was organic at that time. <laughs> but we digress. The, when As Catherine, <laughs> Which could be the new name of this podcast. But we digress. But we digress. What were we talking about? <laughs> when Catherine tees up this question to Vikram... I lit up because this is actually a conversation that Catherine has attempted to have with me a couple times <laughs> over the last couple few weeks. It is Catherine almost out of nowhere pausing whatever TV show we're watching and she'll just look look at me, usually Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Shout out to Umbrella Academy. Amazing. But she'll pause it and she'll look at me and be like, I just, I'm, I've just decided that humans are just rotten. At our core, we're just rotten and we're awful. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. And then I will have to defend all of humanity. You're welcome. 
and explain that, yes, we, we are driven sometimes by our insecurities and ego and, but at our core, we are not rotten. And, and then Catherine will get annoyed at me that I've dismissed her theory out of hand <laughs> and will continue. But, but no, look around our world right now. And a lot of it is, is tied to what's happening with the pandemic and people's behaviors around it and reactions to it, as well as racial injustice. And, and Catherine has, anyway, Catherine is here. So we'll let, we'll let her <laughs> present her argument well, to you. I, I do believe that because we're in 2020 and everything that's happening with COVID and politically and and with the the highlight, it's not new, the racial injustice, but the, the attention and potential change that we're looking at right now, it is easy to kind of peel away the layers and, and look at the humanity underneath it and think how messed up everything is right now. But historically speaking... If you, mm, mm, it, mm, mm, mm. That was one of your arguments. I'm sorry. I think exactly where, you know, we like to watch Vikings and we like to watch a lot of historical period dramas um, and read books. It's not just Netflix, although 2020 is the year of Netflix. I, I just think historically speaking, we are fatally flawed. And and I, I know rotten at our core is maybe a, a bit hyperbolic, but we are so easily skewed towards doing evil deeds and being selfish and being corrupt and choosing ourselves over other people. And uh, we were even watching the, what was the movie we watched last night with Edison? The and Current Plus, Wars. We were watching The Current Wars. Roars. Roars! Roar! We were watching The Current Wars. It's a couple, it's a couple lions and they're like, which one can roar louder? <laughs> the wars. Um, we were watching that and obviously this is a dramatic interpretation, but still... Edison was portrayed in the beginning as uh, very ambitious, but ethically sound. And he had very stern principles about his creations and that he would never create something that would ever cause harm and or death to a human. And then fast forward, he starts experimenting on animals. And then once the animals get experimented on, he inevitably caves and helps basically create the electric chair. And... Even that, I, I didn't say anything to Kate while we were watching it, but don't think my little mental <laughs> notebook wasn't like tick rotten at the core. Where it, it One just, against humanity, <laughs> check. I'm just saying that I do think so many people, if put in positions of power where they get a taste of it and then they want to maintain that because, you know, falling from grace is something that people just can't handle. That like Eve. They, they, or Lucifer. That they will do what serves them over the greater good. And I'm not saying I think that's applicable to every person, but historically speaking, if Off you look you at do. Off our, our, do. our countries and, and if you look at the rulers, like look at the war that, I mean, war after war, after war, after conquer, after empire. And it, it's all just selfish. And it, it just makes me wonder whoever created us, whether it was accidental or not, or whoever is like holding the control buttons and the like puppeteer strings for us. I just, it feels like a fucked up game. (laughs) Because that was one of your, one of your points was like, how can you look at all of humanity and all of our, our cyclical self annihilation? We keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again in different outfits. That should be put on a t-shirt because sometimes our outfits are like steel breastplates and sometimes our outfits are little crowns. I would either go Viking or I would go Victorian personally. Sometimes our outfits are chain mail. I mean, but either, but most of the time our outfits have to do with protecting ourselves against being murdered by another human. (laughs) 
but I, 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 I don't think, I think ultimately you and I probably have the same position on this. Although when we do quote unquote argue about it, I do seem to be the defender of humanity. And I also, I, I also have articulated the position and it's not like extremely well thought out, but that because I have come to believe a lot in the, in the Buddhist principles that you have that shared with me of re- reincarnation and that, yes. <laughs> not just humanity is suffering. Being human is suffering. But of reincarnation. We are here to suffer again and again and again. <laughs> yes, again and again is the key point that I'm getting at, is the ideas around reincarnation and that we're, that we're meant to learn lessons. And so my explanation for why we make the same mistakes and why we are caught in a, in a cycle of self-annihilation is not so much that humans are evil to the core, but that it is almost we're programmed part, that way. It is part of the system that whether you you are born in the 1200s when the outfits, well, it was kind of like the Dark Ages, so I'm not sure what the outfits were. Uh, but Dark Ages was a little earlier than I that, know, but, but, <laughs> but what was that age anyway? That was like the cathedral age. That was like the Ken Follett Pillars of the Earth age. True. I don't know what we call that age. The Ken Follett age. The, <laughs> that's what it's called. <laughs> so during the Ken Follett age and when, <laughs> when the, um, the uniforms or the costumes were like little tights and drapey. Anyway, my point being- <laughs> Like, where are we going with this? No, my <laughs> point being like, whatever time you were born into, you will be experiencing the same things as another time that someone else was born into. Because so you, like to be able to learn about sacrifice and loss and anger and evil and freedom and joy, you need to be set in the same circumstances. And so to me, it's not evidence that humans are- evil and that we do the same things in every era and epoch, but that we have to learn those lessons regardless of when we're born into. And so it's, it's almost like we are caught in an endless loop, but it has not less to do with our evil nature and more to do with that's what the, the lessons are. So is it about individual lessons or lessons for humanity? Because it seems more likely that it's about an individual spiritual lesson if we are indeed put in this cyclical experience where the point isn't to fix it and make it better. The point is to survive it every time. Well, or maybe do you think there's like any validity to if more people wore Jordans that (laughs) things would work out? Well, that, that is the costume of the age, right? For Kate Fagan. For a lot of people, it's sneaker culture. So in a couple hundred years, they'll be like, well, if you got dropped into the 2020s and you were rocking Jordans, like most people were, you still had to deal with the same loss and evil that you would in another generation. I don't know where we're going here because we can't, in the end, we can't probably during this little segment of free cookies answer some of these questions. Or in a human lifetime, really. It turns out we won't know until we've moved on to what other realm is awaiting us, and which is something that is spoken about in Night Theater, which we are about to bring the author on. But before we bring... Turns out he doesn't have the answers either, but we tried. Before, but he has a very, he has interesting philosophies about, about how he thinks about them, and that's really all we can offer. Right is new ways of of thinking about certain ideas. But before we turn it over to Vikram, I think we should get to a very black and white question, which is different than a black and white cookie, cookie. which is also delicious. (laughs) So good. As our black and white questions. Is it a cookie or a cake? Anyway, yes. At their core, are humans bad? Catherine, are you are you willing to say that? I feel like this segment's not going to end until I agree with you. So I am going to go with like a delicious apple if left unattended to for too long it indeed will rot but perhaps if it is given the proper attention 
and eaten slash cared for by other people who appreciate its innate beauty, then perhaps it will never rot. That's beautiful. That is the word of Catherine. Amen. Vikram Paralkar was born and raised in Mumbai. Author of the previous book, The Afflictions, he is a physician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, where he treats patients with leukemia and researches the disease. He lives in Philadelphia. All right, and we are joined with Vikram. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking with us. Uh, so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we... I- we're, we've been very excited to have this conversation with you um, this season. We've been focusing on books and novelists, but your background is so fascinating since you're a physician scientist at UPenn and you are a beautiful writer. You were quite the wordsmith as well. And so I, I love that you are just a, a, what is the term? Jack of many crafts? Is that what I'm looking for? Nope. That's not how it goes. It goes <laughs> jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. I'm really bad with idioms, by the way. You should know this about me, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is just such a great read. Our, our cousin is a librarian, and she recommended this book to us. And I, I can't wait to read The Affliction, the Afflictions in your other books as well. But how have you always been interested in writing or was this something that came up because of your job? Like, how did this all start for you? Um, sure. Uh, well, so I should say I'm, 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 I'm really happy to have been recommended by a librarian. Since <laughs> actually I got my, I got uh, my start with reading uh, books from my school library and from actually the British Council Library in Mumbai. So uh, as a kid, I was always just very, very uh, voraciously interested in books and in science. Um, And very often I'd be reading scientific uh, books, uh, Brief History of Time, books by Richard Dawkins. But I also would be reading uh, as many works of fiction as I could devour. You know, as a teenager, I used to love Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. um, uh, Agatha Christie, and I would just devour them. And I think as I went into my late teens, I began to uh, sense that there was this world uh, of literature that was out there. And that's when I began to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez and mm-hmm. Dostoevsky and uh, Nabokov and Virginia Woolf and other authors that I had never encountered as part of my schooling. Um, this was around also the time when I was going into medical school. Um, and during this period, I continued to be interested in writing and literature. I was the editor of my magazine, uh, of the college magazine when I was in med school, and I decided to come to the United States to pursue a career, as you mentioned, as a physician scientist. And I uh, treat patients with leukemia, and I do research in my laboratory into trying to understand how blood cells develop and how mutations in those cells can lead to leukemia. But all throughout this time, I continue to read. I continue to be interested in writing. I was writing short stories. Um, And I think it was within maybe the last 10 years or so that I began to feel that my writing was at a level where I was comfortable sharing it with the broader world. And that's when I began to look to publish my writing. And so The Afflictions was published about five years ago. And then Night Theatre just came out over the last year or two in India, the UK, and now in the United States. How How do you perceive how your writing impacts your work in leukemia and your science? And how does your work as a doctor, impact your writing? 
You know, I actually think of them as fairly separate aesthetic pursuits, but they are linked, of course, in many important ways. Um, You know, when you're a doctor, you're constantly just struck by questions about the way in which we the way in which the normal functioning of the body is such a, uh, a, a, I would say, an unspoken assumption uh, in all of our uh, the endeavors of our life, you know, our ability to uh, fall in love, our ability to meet someone, our ability to hold a job, our ability to pursue our uh, uh, the vocations of our life, our ability to travel. This, all of this depends on our body doing the things we want it to do. And uh, when you have uh, when you have some kind of disease that is disabling the body, you have all of these ripple effects that uh, go through every aspect of your life. And so, uh, the health and disease are actually themes in every single major literary idea that you can conceive, whether it's the desires of the individual, their ability to relate to other people, and also their place in society. And so I am just constantly struck by uh, by j- just how rich and interesting uh, the, the idea of health and disease is when it comes to <clears throat> uh, human uh, exploration and human character and, in, and the human condition. And so a lot of my writing sort of falls in the interface of health and disease, of trying to understand how people who uh, um, are in uh, who uh, who uh, don't exactly fit into the normal world of the healthy navigate this world uh, as well as how do people who how do practitioners of medicine who uh, who are, are tasked with trying to help people return to health uh, how do they navigate this world uh, and that that's what uh, a lot of my that's what a lot of my writing focuses on uh, but that said I should say that you know my literary influences have very little to do with medicine. Um, so most of the writers I greatly admire aren't, aren't medical writers. And so um, um, and so I would say when people read my writing, they shouldn't read it because of medical themes. Right. Uh, that just happens to be the substrate upon which some of my writing is built, but I hope it can speak to just human ideas uh, and human uh, uh, longings and desires. I I think you do an excellent job with bridging spirituality with medicine in in the story. And um, actually, I believe this is a quote from The Afflictions, but you you have a, a quote that says, sickness and suffering are integral to the human soul, which... It very much seems to encapsulate what you were just talking about, and really for me evokes even the the Buddhist principle that living being human is suffering and part of i I'm always drawn to darkness, and I don't know what that means about me as a person I, I don't mean I'm necessarily drawn to do dark things, but I love darkness, and there was something about the night theater I loved how unabashedly you explored um kind of like the dark crevices of the soul and what humans will do and, and how they feel. So uh, I was just wondering, <laughs> this is kind of a big question, but like, w- what is your interpretation of humanity? You know, do, do you think that at a base level we are these dark creatures or is there, because your, your interpretation of the afterlife and then the night theater is very interesting too and a bit bleak. So I'm just wondering, you know, is that symbolic of kind of, what you see in humanity or 
is there a chance for us? <laughs> Especially well, in 2020. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you're asking this question at a very interesting right. time. I mean, it's I, I, I actually, um, I, I think the funniest analogy I saw to this was, uh, do, do you know, and there's this uh, uh, scene in The Simpsons where the character sideshow Bob is surrounded by mm-hmm. rakes yeah. and he's stepping on one rake after the other and the rakes just keep on hitting him in the face. And I was thinking <laughs> about that's such an amazing analogy for what COVID is, the world is dealing with COVID, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Despite <laughs> Ample warning, we are all just, just stepping on brakes all over the place. <laughs> uh, you know, you know um, um, so, so humanity is an interesting uh, um, uh, uh, case of life that has emerged on Earth because we are the only kind of life that is actually able to reflect on our existence and on our history. Mm. And so there are so many different creatures out there who are driven by motivations that they themselves do not understand. But the purpose basically is to live and to reproduce and to pass on their genes. Uh, But human beings have reached a point where the process of evolution and the process of uh, trying to improve our survival has allowed our minds to now reflect back upon this process and think about its Uh, think about uh, its flaws and think about all of the uh, good and uh, um, uh, 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 evil impulses that have been uh, that have been embedded into us by this constant drive for survival. And so I think human beings, of course, have we have light and dark within ourselves. You know, we have the ability to feel love and we have the ability to protect. And we also have the ability to form tribes and the ability to destroy and to demonize. And these uh, these ideas are just constantly uh, uh, these forces that we are fighting against. And we will we will continue to uh, fight against uh, even if you know one day there's human civilization in the stars. And um, uh, you mentioned the the idea of the afterlife in my book. So uh, for those who have not read the book, the afterlife in night theater, and I suppose this is a bit of a spoiler, is uh, actually a bureaucracy uh, where, um, um, uh, it, uh, where uh, you know, the, 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 the dead in the afterlife uh, are trying to find a way out of the afterlife and back into the, the world of the living. Um, but all they're faced with is layers after layers of bureaucrats who do not give them any meaningful answer. And this idea actually came from one of my uh, literary uh, heroes and inspirations, which is Franz Kafka. And, you know, Kafka uh, pinpointed something that was very um, uh, fascinating and interesting and something that I don't think had been quite spelled out by any author before that point. And perhaps it is something, a feature of humanity that emerged in the post-industrial era, which is that when you have a system uh, which becomes large enough with large enough and is trying to govern large enough collections of people, the individual disappears within that system. And all that remains is a set of rules. And all you have to do is follow those rules and you'll be punished if you violate those rules. But you don't understand those rules. The rules often are completely disconnected from human desire and human uh, uh, motivation. And the rules then become the most important thing in the system and not the human being. And uh, I specifically wanted to introduce that idea into the, the book because the book really is centered upon the individual. Uh, It's centered upon this family of the dead who want to come back to life and upon this surgeon who is somewhat of a misanthrope, but who's thrown into the situation where he has the opportunity to help the dead return to life. But for once, he has no guidance from any system. 
There is no system of ethics that will tell him what the right thing to do is. There's no system of medicine that will uh, guide him through this night. There is no uh, system of rules that tells him whether what he's doing is right or wrong. All he has is himself and his own conscience in the night of this, uh, uh, at night in this village, little village clinic. And he has to decide whether he is going to help uh, these dead individuals return to life or not, and how far he's going to go to do that. And so I particularly wanted to include that because I do think at the end of the day, the locus of morality has to be the individual. We are all responsible for our own decisions. Um, and irrespective of the system within which we are embedded, we are the ones who make choices about uh, uh, our lives and our uh, the choices, the, 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 the directions in which we take uh, ourselves. That's interesting because you, you mentioned how in, in the book, the, the surgeon doesn't have the rules and regulations and bureaucracy to tell him how to handle life and death in this situation. And it got, it, I was just thinking just now how at least the system I know, the American system, when it comes to hospitals and, and, and doctors, it almost feels like we have those rules and bureaucracy to some degree as a distraction from actually talking about death, like mm -hmm. that patients want to know percentages and they want to know that there's, it's almost, there's something comforting in the speaking of death as rules and bureaucracy rather than actually getting to the heart of our, our, our humanity and that it's all inevitable from us. I'm not sure if this is totally connecting, but that's kind of what it, it made me start thinking about. And I was wondering as someone who has, you know, having come to the U S from India and knowing two different cultures, do you have any understanding or any insight into why it seems maybe in America and it could not just be America. We struggle so much in conversations around death that's actually a really interesting question. You know, I mean, there are me there's so many differences um, in the the way um, uh, death and the idea of death and rituals around death and approach to death is seen in India versus uh, in in the Western world. That it's very difficult to make direct. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint single ideas. But the one thing I can say is that in India. Um, I think there's just the acceptance of the idea that you are not immortal mm. and there will come a time when your body is going to fail. And then the question becomes to what heroic degrees do you go to keep uh, the individual alive and what level of suffering is acceptable to let that happen? Mm -hmm. um, in the United States, sometimes I feel as though there is a denial of the idea of death um, that if we can just go to the next therapy and the next therapy and the next experimental treatment, you can somehow keep uh, the, the process of life going on forever. And uh, at some level, this drives innovation, drives research, it drives patients who want to be on clinical trials, which helps generate uh, data for drugs that will now become the standard of care for the next um, set of patients to come along. And so there's clearly a merit to that kind of approach. But on the other hand, you also have a situation where uh, an enormous amount of money is spent and lots of painful procedures are performed in the last two weeks of a person's life. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, many patients, sometimes with cancers, who uh, could have the opportunity to pass away at home with their families end up 
uh, spending the last days in an intensive care unit, poked and prodded and unable to get sleep because of beeping machines. Um, and I, I do think one of the one of the fields of medicine that has recently, uh, well, it's been, of course, there for a long time, but recently it's actually become very prominent in oncology is the field of palliative care, a palliative medicine. And the goal of palliative care is not to determine what is the next treatment to give you, but it is to determine what are the goals of your life, what is your overall approach to the end point of the disease that you might have. And this applies not just to cancers, but you know patients who have uh, significant heart failure or have very severe lung disease where there's no hope for an organ transplant, something that is going to uh, bring them uh, back to complete health and where they're looking at a slow decline or in dementia, for instance. Um, and I think the pa palliative care is a discipline where the doctors are trained to have these conversations with patients, to talk to them about what is it that you want? Where, if, if you had to die, where would you want to die? Would you want it to be at home? Would you want it to be in a hospital? Would you want it to be in an uh, institutional facility of some kind? And I think the fact that these conversations are happening when people are healthy uh, uh, is really useful. And I think uh, I, I do think these are difficult conversations. These are important conversations. Uh, and I think they have they really should begin much before someone is facing a terminal illness. So that as a society, we are prepared for the inevitable when it does come and uh, we can allow the transition into debt to be peaceful um, and can also recognize when it's worth pushing and when it's worth accepting side effects and treatment and the point where you cross a line into medical futility. And that conversation, so I, I, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I would say, I mean, this is just one, this is just, I'm, I'm just peeling the, the last, you know, the, the most superficial peel of the onion. This is such a complicated, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, deep conversation that we actually have all the time. I was on service uh, at the hospital just uh, a week and a half ago, and I feel as though I was having this conversation every day yeah. with uh, patients with leukemia, some of whom have just been diagnosed and have been thrown into this chaotic, disorienting illness, some who have the opportunity for cure, some who have a disease that has very low probability of cure, some who have already been through multiple regimens and whose disease has not been controlled. And so um, I, I would say this is a very difficult conversation, but these are um, uh, important uh, conversations to have. Absolutely. And the, the concept of being able to have these kind of conversations, like you said, when you're healthy and to to think ahead, if we take it back to night theater, uh, and for the listeners who haven't read the book, the concept is that there's this family of three who were murdered, who come to the surgeon um, because there's basically this window of time that if he can fix their wounds, that they will come back, they will fill with blood and their organs will start to work again in the morning and they could potentially come back to life. Um, I don't think I gave anything away. I think that's like that's established early in the yeah. book. No, that, that's, yeah. ex, that's an excellent synopsis. There's the, there's the hook, you guys, okay? But this the, the concept of the afterlife that you paint, the bureaucracy, and then this concept of denial of death. And then what you just introduced is, you know, the privilege of having these conversations before you get into palliative care. And I thought what was so interesting about the characters in your book, and like you said, that the afterlife, there are all these rules that you're supposed to follow and there's no explanation for why these rules exist except for that you just do it. And yet these three family members somehow got to come back to earth to a human, to the surgeon, who very much 
is the only place in this novel that I felt God existed. And your surgeon to me was God. And because in the afterlife, it doesn't seem that God was there. It, it actually felt much more like a purgatory than the existence, uh, than of like pearly gates or whatever interpretation you want to have of passing on. And I just, I'm curious when you're writing your story, did you have that moment of thinking that your main character, like this is a wildly unique interpretation of God, yet this is where you come for, I mean, he's supposed to be the savior in the story. Well, you know, um, um, it, it's an it's an interesting perspective that you uh, bring because I, so I personally um, haven't believed in God since I think I was 12 or 13 years old. But I see why, I see exactly why uh, people yearn for the idea of God and why God remains such a powerful idea in, of course, and most of the religions of the world, but even people who uh, very often don't want to be to connect with any specific religion still have an idea of a deity in their mind. Mm-hmm. And I think there is this um, there is this desire for human beings to look outside of ourselves and to see an order in the universe that is going to protect us. Um, and the, the idea that this order has been imposed by some uh, benevolent being that is going to protect us. And in, in a way, what I wanted to specifically do with Night Theater is just strip away all of these, any possible uh, cosmic order. Mm. Um, and if you, if you remove that cosmic order, at least a benevolent cosmic order, then all you are left with is the, the conscience of the individual and the actions of the individual. So it is true that in the story, the 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 uh, the surgeon is the most powerful character in a way, um, uh, the most powerful character whose decisions are going to affect the lives of everyone around him. But at the same time, he's not uh, he's not he's not benev- uh, benevolent at all. <laughs> well, well, so there's the question of the, the question of benevolence. He's very he's very flawed. But yeah. uh, what he isn't is he clearly is not omnipotent. So he can't do sure. everything he wants to do. And he is not invincible. He himself is vulnerable to all kinds of uh, factors around him. And I, I think in a way that uh, that perhaps may be the best you are going to get with a deity. Um, yeah. Someone who, despite his or her limitations, is struggling to be good. Um, perhaps that is what God, you know, perhaps that is what, if there exists a God, uh, perhaps he or she has uh, their own limitations uh, and is struggling to run a just world despite them. You, you know, in, in the book, the the surgeon speaks very candidly with his patients, with this returned family who he's trying to fix. He's, he tells them mostly, I think at every turn, the truth about what he has been able to do inside their bodies and when morning comes and they are filled with blood, what will happen? And it got, it got me thinking about your real life and when you are sitting down with patients who you might have to deliver a diagnosis to that is going to be difficult to say. How do you balance humanity and knowing that people need the truth while also needing to be very, I don't know how, whether it's you need to be soft and cushion the landing for them. How do you approach those interactions with your patients? And is there ever an urge to tell them less than the truth, just because sometimes the truth can be so painful? 
I would I will say that there definitely is the urge to um, simplify the setting, uh, make the future vague, uh, present only the goal of what you plan to do for the next day or two without talking of the big picture. The temptation certainly exists. I try to resist it whenever I can. The, well, well, here's what I try to do. I When I go into a patient's room, I first try to give them all of the information uh, that they're capable of understanding. And this varies from patient to patient. There'll be patients who have pre-existing medical training or have understanding of genetics and may have the ability to absorb a lot of very sophisticated information. And then there may be patients who may just need things in a much more colloquial um, 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 and sort of everyday level. Uh, and they may not want or may not be able to sufficiently absorb uh, really complicated information. But the first thing I try to get uh, patients uh, to a point, first, I first try to get patients to a point where they actually understand what is it that is going on with them. And this itself, I have to say, is sometimes um, so difficult because very often, uh, you know, there are these connotations of words like cancer, for example, uh, that people just have, if you have cancer, it means X, Y, and Z. But there are many different kinds of cancers. There are chronic cancers. There are some cancers that don't require treatment for long periods of time. There are cancers that are curable. There are cancers that aren't. There are cancers that are rapidly growing. There are cancers that are slowly growing. And so trying to help a patient understand exactly what is the disease that they have, um, what is it doing right now, do they need treatment at the moment, uh, and then what is the disease going to do in the future? And I think that's how I try to begin. And I constantly try to uh, assess from patients what is it that they want to know right now? How ready are they to uh, hear about the, whole, the big picture? And in general, I do try to present to um, patients the, uh, the biggest picture possible in that this cancer is curable, but yes, there are, there are um, a certain number of patients who we cannot cure of this cancer and who end up uh, succumbing to the disease. Um, and I, I do think it is important for patients to hear that so that they can they can be concretely prepared um, for for the treatment plan that is to come. Um, and and I, I think it is important for people to really understand what they're getting into because sometimes these chemotherapy regimens can also be quite complicated. Uh, but I don't think there's a one-size-fit-all uh, rule. Um, and I, I, I think it's helping people understand the gravity or not of their diagnosis uh, and then helping them understand exactly what the treatment is going to be, what its goal is, um, and and then guiding them through that process. But actually, the, the fact that you mentioned uh, this reminds me of an interesting study that was done several years ago where um, <clears throat> patients with metastatic solid tumors, so for example, metastatic breast cancer, metastatic lung cancer, mm -hmm. which is incurable um, and which will eventually claim the life of the patient. Um, <clears throat> these, um, um, there, was a, there was a study that was done where doctors were asked, did you convey the incurability of this cancer and the fact that it is life-limiting to your patients? And then the patients after the appointment were asked, are you aware of the fact that you have a cancer that is incurable and life-limiting? And the discrepancy between that was really shocking. Mm. Um, oncologists felt that they were conveying this information to their patients, but sometimes patients simply were not hearing it or not receiving it um, in, in the way that the oncologists felt that they were conveying it. And this is where I think, um, 
euphemisms can sometimes be, you know, we, we talk about language. Uh, language can illuminate, but language can also conceal. Yeah. Um, so, for example, if I say, well, if this cancer isn't treated very well, uh, we can get into trouble down the, ra- down the road. Um, now, mm-hmm. this may be a vague way of saying, well, it is in, if it's incurable, it may result in um, a life-threatening complication and may cause your death. But the patient may simply hear it as, oh, well, it may lead to some kind of uh, trouble, but I'm sure there'll be treatments for those troubles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, I think, uh, th- this is a this is a uh, th- this is something that all oncologists uh, work on, um, and a, and a, I, I personally find that I'm also uh, 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 with every interaction, I think I get better at judging what the patient is capable of receiving what the patient uh, is willing to hear at this point, um, and at what point should you get to uh, actual percentages, numbers, uh, and concrete data about outcome. Um, to, to flip the kind of good doctor coin a little bit, there's a part in night theater where the surgeon gets a visitor, and the visitor asks him, what gives you greater satisfaction, cutting people or stitching them back up, and then continuing to explain how all animals have the ability to tear open, all have the ability to destroy, but only humans can mend, which struck me so deeply. Like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. And since neither Kate or I are doctors, you know, this is not a conceit that we've really chewed on before. And um, of course, I'm going back into the darkness again because I warned you I like dark things, but that it was such a, in my mind, beautifully honest question. Because Mm -hmm. as a doctor, like I said earlier, I mean, it is godly. You do have this godly power of healing someone and curing someone and protecting them. And um, I don't don't necessarily want to ask you that question because I don't know if you're interested in answering it. But I, I would like to know where that question came from for you. Well, in this particular case, you know, uh, the the question was asked by <clears throat> a character, and this I don't I don't want to give too much away. But this is a character who's particularly trying to psychologically manipulate and terrify the surgeon um, in in that setting. And so he's he's asking him in a very in in a very specific context in the book. But I do think that the, it it does speak to a certain um, it does speak to one particular aspect of medicine that sometimes um, uh, goes unappreciated, which is that doctors constantly do things that are actively life-threatening to a normal human being. Mm -hmm. So for instance, my job involves giving very toxic chemotherapy to patients. The hope is that it will lead to a cure of uh, the cancer that the patient has. But you would never give these medicines to someone who has nothing wrong with them um, because Mm -hmm. these, these medicines by themselves can cause severe infections, can cause um, can kill some patients, uh, can cause uh, long-term complications to the heart, to the liver, to the kidneys. And so um, I, I think there is just there's this aspect that doctors constantly have to be aware of, of the weight of the responsibility that is on their shoulders, um, of the fact that they are, um, uh, they are prescribing something or they're performing a surgery or they're offering some kind of medical procedure that has the active ability to harm but you're doing it because you expect in the long term that it is going to mm. uh, give rise to uh, a positive. That, that is why you offer it. And so I personally, every time I, you know, right, not right now, ordering chemotherapy is a click off a button on the computer. 
But every time I do this, I force myself to sit back and just think about exactly what it is I'm doing. I'm giving a medicine which has highly toxic side effects to another human being. Um, and I think that is my way of just reminding myself of the fact that every patient puts an enormous amount of trust in the doctor because we talk about informed consent and about the patient uh, making decisions. But really, unless you're an oncologist, you cannot actually truly be giving informed consent because you truly don't understand uh, whether this is the right regimen to give, what the risks and benefits of the regimen are. And so what you end up in the situation is just a doctor, a patient placing trust in the doctor um, and giving the doctor the ability to cause them harm. Um, and that, I think, is an enormous uh, responsibility, an enormous weight on the shoulder of every doctor that uh, they really... I, I, I think that sometimes medicine becomes very routine, and I hope doctors don't forget that aspect of medical care, that you have someone else's life in your hand um, and you are making grave decisions on their behalf. I would only ask this question if you had already planted it as one of the themes of the book. And I, and I read that you did consider it one of the themes of the book. And I, and I preface it by that because I know it's a huge question. And in the book, you have this family who is jumping through so many hoops to get back to life and the existence of this afterlife plane. And one of the, one of the themes that I, I read that the book is about and that this, you know, this could be right or wrong is trying to touch on the question of do our lives truly matter in the scale of the cosmos and the scale of how vast the, the universe is. And here's this one little story this one little microcosm of, of how much a human being and human beings will, will go through to be given this life or to return to this life. So how do you think, how do you think of that, of that question as, as you were working through this book and as, and as you work each day at UPenn, how do you think of that, of that question of, of whether our lives truly matter in the scale of how big the universe is? Yeah, so I, you know, this is something that I, um, um, I think I first became aware of just how vast the cosmos was when I think I read, um, I read an, uh, I, I think I read a book about Edwin Hubble. This was back when I, this was in my early teens, uh, describing how the galaxies were all moving, rushing far apart from each other, and that's how we learned that the universe is expanding, and. That's when I learned that uh, our galaxy has uh, 100 billion stars, which is one followed by 11 zeros. And there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And we don't actually think that the observable universe is the entire universe because it doesn't seem like there's an edge. It ju this is just how far we can see. Uh, and so there probably continues to be a universe beyond that, but this is just what we can see. And so in essence, we are, uh, our star is one of, one followed by 22 zero stars that are in this universe. And I, I do think it, and we are of course on this little planet that's rotating around the star. And each one of us is like a speck of dust uh, on this planet. And um, one perspective here would be to say that uh, maybe our lives don't matter. Maybe uh, the universe wouldn't care if the entire Earth just went up in flame or you know, the sun went supernova and wiped out the Earth. The universe may not care. 
But that's one perspective of seeing it. But another perspective would be, well, it turns out in the solar system, we are probably the only beings that have the ability to look back upon ourselves, look at the entire history of uh, the our, our planet, of life, of the universe. In fact, we are the only beings that are even capable of asking the question of whether we matter. Uh, the planet Jupiter, it's you know, it, the molecules of uh, methane in its atmosphere are not asking this question. Um, the, if there's an ocean on Europa, unless there is life there that's fairly sophisticated, uh, that question is not being asked in Europa. But that question is being asked on Earth. Um, and we are able to look at each other. We are able to ask, um, um, does uh, we are able to look at ourselves, we are able to uh, uh, appreciate how wondrous it is that we actually do exist and how unlikely, uh, how unfathomably unlikely it is that we do exist. Um, and in this existence, we have the ability to make human connections and to matter to each other. And so even though we may not matter in the eyes of the cosmos, it doesn't change the fact that we matter to our parents, we matter to our children, we matter to our spouses and our friends um, and to the world. And, uh, and I think uh, trying to find um, uh, meaning in human connection is, to me, far more important than trying to find meaning in the eyes of the cosmos. Uh, I should say that one of the things that religions try to do is make human life significant in the eyes of the cosmos. You matter because the cosmos wants you to matter. Well, if it turns out that there is no one in the cosmos who's looking down upon you and caring about you, if that is going to strip away uh, all meaning in your life, then that would mean that the idea of meaning was somewhat impoverished to start with. Uh, but I, but I would say that this is something that uh, I think uh, this sort of this existential idea of us being as individ uh, individual creatures in a species that is completely isolated in the cosmos. Uh, I do think it is something that has a lot of uh, force for a lot of people. It certainly has for me. Uh, in 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 contemplating the idea of meaning, in contemplating our place in this cosmos, uh, and um, um, in, in thinking about our achievements and whether they matter, and I think they do matter. Uh, but I think this also creates excellent fodder for literature to explore. Yeah. Well, with within this cosmos that contains the humanity, what are a couple books that you're reading that you think matter? That you would want to recommend recently. It's not like you have to give us your greatest hits. Maybe it's the a couple books in 2020 that you think matter. Oh, uh, well, let me read so a book that I just started reading, which I would have would, I, I should have read uh, a couple of years ago is The Underground Railroad mm -hmm. by Colson Whitehead, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I think that was it three or four years ago. And his second book, The Nickel Boys, just won a Pulitzer Prize again. Uh, so he's he now has two Pulitzer Prizes, but the book is just extraordinary. Does um, anyone so really would... need two Pulitzer Prizes? I feel like one, <laughs> it's a stamp of approval. We're probably going to read all your work. <laughs> you need the collection, yes. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Please carry on. Right, and that is an extraordinary book because I think it it does something that, um, um, you know, it very immediately does something that I think, going to the idea of mattering, um, it, I think the, the most powerful thing that a book can do is create a character and bring that character to life immediately yeah. and make their concerns, in this case, it's a child who's born into slavery, and make their concerns so important that the fact of these 
10 to the 20, 10 to the 22 stars existing doesn't change the fact that that child's life matters. Um, and so that uh, I, I would give this as an example of uh, if you want uh, if you want an antidote to cosmic nihilism, uh, you could read a book <laughs> that really engages you in the life of one character. Okay, so I, I'm not sure I've ever had a, a come down as drastic from asking the question of whether we matter in the cosmos to this next question. But since this is, the name of this podcast is Free Cookies and cookies are made of matter, right? <laughs> and they cookies are. matter. And cookies do matter. What is, what is your favorite cookie? Oh, I mean chocolate chip, of hey! course. This is not even this is not even a question. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Choc- chocolate chip. I, I'm I'm kind of I'm you know I would be the guy who takes like chocolate ice cream with chocolate Ooh. sprinkles with chocolate uh, sauce on top of it. Oh, you are not uh, messing so around. Absolutely chocolate. Absolutely <laughs> chocolate chip. Now, would you get a chocolate chocolate chip cookie? Like, do you want the um, the Traditional the batter base, to be chocolate. Yeah, or, or are you so hardcore chocolate that you would do a chocolate chocolate chip cookie? Uh, oh, I know. I, that's what I meant. A chocolate oh, chocolate chip cookie. And then yes. chocolate sprinkles on top of it. And then chocolate frosting on top of it. And then Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I think you've already answered the question, but I'm going to ask even more. You walk into a bakery, there's, there's the chocolate chocolate chip cookie, but then there's also some specialty cookies. Have you explored in your mind since we've asked this question, any specialty cookie? That you really are hmm. into as well, you know, because this could be like a peanut butter cup on is on top of it, anything that's, like that. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, but maybe going in the theme of this uh, discussion in this podcast, um, if there's a dark chocolate cookie, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go with that. I okay, admire I think, your dedication. Yes, it's been reinforced. <laughs> Well, we will be sending you a gift package of all things chocolate. Dark, dark uh, chocolate. Dark, dark chocolate. Like dark matter. Right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my goodness. Well, well, well I guess the, well, well, the thing with dark matter is doesn't, it doesn't actually interact with normal matter, so it won't have any taste. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that the dark chocolate will have a taste. <laughs> yes, yes, it definitely will. There's hope for humanity. <laughs> all right, Vikram, thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with us. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure to chat with you and keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That'll do it for this week's episode of Free Cookies. Are humans evil or good? That is the question addressed on this week's episode of Freedom Cookies. Freedom Cookies rotten to our cookie core. Does a cookie have a core? Could a cookie have a core? Well, An some, ice cream cookie sandwich could kind of be a core. And some bakeries make cookies with cores, and the core like might the be- Like the amazing Cynthia Wong. By the way, if you live in Charleston, South Carolina, you need to follow Life Raft Treats. And on Mondays at 6 p.m., she opens up for orders. It's only local, so this is for our Charleston peeps, but th- she's going to figure out how to start shipping soon. I'm telling you. I, I only say this because Ooh. she made a cherry and a peach, and when you cut into it, it's got ice cream and cookies, and it looks like the pit, and it's just nuts. She's a genius. She's a, she's a god amongst um, pastry ice cream people. Chefs. You know what? I have a trade to make. If somebody is desperate to try Cynthia Wong, who is a James Beard Award finalist pastry chef, if somebody in Los Angeles wants to try Cynthia Wong's creations, you can order them. I will pick them up and I will pack them in like ice and ship them to you. If you are willing to go to to MedMen 
and pick up some Kiva edibles and send them to Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. It'll be like a trade. It's totally legal. Well, it's listen, totally listen, fine. Come, come at us. If, 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 if there's somebody from the government listening to this episode and they're going to pinpoint the person that then privately emails me, like more power to them. We're getting flagged. Look, I'm, I'm willing to make this trade. I'm willing to do it. But uh, assuming that we have a podcast after that, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash free cookies. You can also follow us at at free cookies podcast on Instagram and also check out FNB radio because that is the podcast of our producer, Lindsay Collins. You can rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Please, please go rate and review the show and we will highlight your wonderful words right here on this podcast. But you know what it takes to rate and review a show with good words? A solid core. A good core. <laughs> a solid core of humanity and a love and meaning and connection among people. And Prove not, me wrong. Prove me wrong. And not a dedication to ego and insecurity and, and a thirst for power, but rather a connection to one another and the spirituality that draws us all together in this one humanity. Okay. Oh, Teardrop. Okay, peace out, guys.